This episode of the OrthoBullets podcast will go over the topic of occipital cervical instability from the spine section on orthobullets.com. Let's start this episode with a quick summary. Occipital cervical instability can be traumatic or acquired through a degenerative process such as rheumatoid arthritis or Down syndrome. Diagnosis is usually confirmed with a combination of CT scan, MRI, and lateral flexion extension radiographs. Traumatic instability is treated with occipital cervical fusion. Acquired instability is treated with observation or occipital cervical fusion depending on the presence of neurologic deficits. Now, let's get into the episode. With respect to epidemiology, let's talk about traumatic occipital cervical instability versus acquired occipital cervical instability. So starting with traumatic occipital cervical instability, as far as incidence, approximately 15 to 30% of cervical spine injuries occur at the occipital cervical junction. In terms of prevalence, traumatic occipital cervical instability is identified in 19% of fatal cervical injuries. Moving on to acquired occipital cervical instability, this is most frequently seen in the Down syndrome population. These patients are usually asymptomatic and identified in screening for surgery or special Olympic participation. Moving on to etiology, in terms of terminology, occipital cervical instability is also called atlanto-occipital dissociation, or AOD, and occipital cervical dislocation. The pathophysiology of occipital cervical instability can be secondary to traumatic or acquired etiologies. Starting with traumatic etiologies, in terms of mechanism of injury, occipital cervical instability can be secondary to high-energy trauma and translation or distraction injuries that destabilize the occipital cervical junction. In terms of the pathoanatomy, the head most often displaces anteriorly. As far as the pathoanatomy in the setting of acquired pathophysiology, this is due to bony dysplasia or ligament and soft tissue laxity. Associated conditions with occipitocervical instability include atlantoaxial instability, which is also seen in Down syndrome patients, neurologic deficits, vertebral or carotid artery injuries, and Down syndrome. Now let's go over some relevant anatomy. Specifically, we'll discuss osteology, ligaments, the vascular system, and the nervous system. Starting with osteology, in terms of morphology, occipital condyles are paired prominences of the occipital bone. These are oval or bean-shaped structures forming the lateral aspects of the foramen magnum. In terms of joint articulations, there is an intrinsic relationship between the occiput, atlas, and axis to form the occipital-atlantoaxial complex, or CCJ. There are six main synovial articulations the anterior and posterior median atlanto-odontoid joints, paired atlanto-occipital joints, and paired atlanto-axial joints. Moving on to ligaments, intrinsic ligaments are located within the spinal canal and provide most of the ligamentous stability. They include the transverse ligament, paired alar ligaments, apical ligament, and the tectorial membrane. The transverse ligament is the primary stabilizer of the atlanto-axial junction. It connects the posterior odontoid to the anterior atlas arch, inserting laterally on the bony tubercles. Paired alar ligaments connect the odontoid to the occipital condyles. These are relatively strong and contribute to the occipital cervical stability. Moving on to apical ligaments, these are relatively weak midline structures and run vertically between the odontoid and foramen magnum. Finally, moving on to the tectorial membrane, this connects the posterior body of the axis to the anterior foramen magnum and is the cephalad continuation of the posterior longitudinal ligament. In terms of the vascular system, the occipital condyles are in proximity to the vertebral arteries. Finally, with respect to the nervous system, there is proximity of the occipital condyles to the medulla oblongata, spinal cord, and lower cranial nerves, specifically cranial nerves 9 through 12. 
Now let's talk about the classification of occipital cervical instability. The ones to know include the Trainellis classification, which is based on the direction of displacement, and the Harborview classification system, which is based on the degree of instability. So starting with the Trainellis classification, which again is based on the direction of displacement, this is divided into three types. Type 1 corresponds to anterior occiput dislocation, type 2 corresponds to longitudinal dislocation, and type 3 corresponds to posterior occiput dislocation. The Harborview classification system, which again is based on the degree of instability, is divided into three stages. Stage 1 corresponds to minimal or non-displaced unilateral injury to the craniocervical ligaments, and this injury is considered stable. Stage 2 corresponds to minimally displaced, but the MRI demonstrates significant soft tissue injuries, and stability must be based on a traction test, so these injuries can be stable or unstable. Finally, stage 3 corresponds to gross craniocervical misalignment, that is the BAI or BDI is greater than 2 millimeters beyond normal limits, and these injuries by nature are considered unstable. Moving on to imaging, recommended views on radiographs include an AP, lateral, and odontoid views. As far as findings, these have low sensitivity in detecting injury, specifically 57% sensitive. Certain measurements are used to diagnose occipital cervical dislocation, and the ones to know include the powers ratio and the Harris rule of 12. The powers ratio, which is CD over AB, where CD is the distance from the basion to the posterior arch, and AB is the distance from the anterior arch to the opistheon. In terms of the significance of the powers ratio, a ratio of approximately 1 is normal. If greater than 1, there is a concern for anterior dislocation. A ratio of less than 1 raises concern for posterior atlanto-occipital dislocation, odontoid fractures, and ring of atlas fractures. Moving on to the Harris rule of 12, this refers to a Bayesian dense interval or Bayesian posterior axial interval where greater than 12 millimeters suggests occipital cervical dissociation. Moving on to CT, this is considered the gold standard for osseous injuries of the spine. The most important views are the mid-sagittal CT reconstruction views. In terms of CT angios, these are indicated to evaluate for injury to the vertebral artery. Be sure to identify the anatomy of the vertebral artery prior to occipital cervical fusion. Finally, in terms of MRI, this may be indicated for suspected ligamentous injury with preserved alignment or occult injury. This is also indicated in the setting of neurological deficits. Now, let's talk about the treatment of occipital cervical instability, which can be non-operative or operative. Non-operative management includes provisional stabilization while avoiding traction. This is indicated in the setting of traumatic instability with distraction of the occipital atlantal joint. Techniques include halo vest, tongs, and keep in mind that prolonged cervical orthosis is not recommended due to poor stabilization of the atlanto-occipital joint. In terms of outcomes, use of traction should be avoided in most cases. Traction may be considered in stage 2 injuries when MRI demonstrates soft tissue injury with preserved alignment. Operative options include occipital cervical fusion, and as far as indications, most traumatic cases require stabilization. Other indications include acquired cases when there's evidence of myelopathy or significant symptomatic neck pain. Other indications include invagination and atlantoaxial impaction secondary to inflammatory arthropathy, for example, rheumatoid arthritis. And finally, another indication is in the setting of a tumor. Now, let's talk about the technique for occipital cervical fusion in a bit more detail. As far as the approach, you will make a posterior midline incision with the patient in the prone position. A Mayfield retractor is used to obtain proper craniocervical alignment. Be sure to establish preoperative occiput to C2 angle with lateral fluoroscopy prior to draping. 
In terms of deep dissection, if performing a C1 lateral mass screw fixation, work within the safe zone and do not dissect above the posterior arch of C1 more than one centimeter lateral to the midline to avoid injury to the vertebral artery. As far as instrumentation, with respect to length, posterior segmental instrumented fusion is usually performed from occiput to C3. In terms of occipital instrumentation, occipital plates usually allow for three or four total screws with adjustable rod holders. As far as occipital screws, these are usually unicortical to avoid injury to the venous sinus. Keep in mind that the major dural venous sinuses are located just below the external occipital protuberance and are at risk of penetrative injury. Some institutions prefer bicortical screws, but they come at increased risk. It's also important to mention the occipital screw safe zone, and the safe zone for occipital screws is located within an area measuring 2 cm lateral and 1 cm inferior to the external occipital protuberance along the superior nuchal line. In terms of C1 lateral mass screws, these are often skipped due to the angle at the base of the skull making it more difficult to place a rod. You may choose a unilateral screw to provide some rotational stability to the C1 ring. In terms of C2 fixation, PARs, pedicle screws, transarticular or translaminar screws are all options. Finally, in terms of C3 fixation, standard lateral mass screws are aimed cephalad and lateral to avoid the vertebral artery. In terms of arthrodesis, you may require bone grafting or removal of bony fragments compressing neurovascular structures. Now, let's end this review session talking about complications of occipital cervical instability. And the main ones to know include non-union and bleeding. And in terms of bleeding, the specific structures to be aware of include the internal carotid artery and the vertebral artery. Okay, so now that we've gone over the major points about this topic, let's go over a few questions to apply the information and get a sense of how this topic might be tested. First question. A 43-year-old female undergoes posterior occipital cervical fusion due to significant instability secondary to rheumatoid arthritis. During placement of screws in C1, the drill penetrates through the anterior cortex, which places what structure at the greatest risk of injury? And the choices are 1. Basilar artery, 2. Internal carotid artery, 3. Vertebral artery, 4. Anterior spinal artery, and 5. Posterior spinal artery. The correct answer to this question is 2. Internal carotid artery. So the structure at the greatest risk of injury with perforation of the anterior cortex at C1 is the internal carotid artery, or ICA. To quickly go over the incorrect answers, answer 1, basilar artery, is incorrect, as this is located on the anterior aspect of the brainstem and is not at risk with penetration of the C1 anterior cortex. Answer 3, vertebral artery, is incorrect, as while the vertebral artery is at risk with fixation in the upper cervical spine, it is not at risk at the anterior aspect of C1. Answer 3, vertebral artery, is incorrect, as while the vertebral artery is at risk with fixation in the upper cervical spine, it is not at risk at the anterior aspect of C1. Answer 4, anterior spinal artery, is incorrect, as this is found intrathecally and is not at risk anterior to C1. Finally, answer 5, the posterior spinal artery is incorrect, as this is also found intrathecally and is also not at risk anterior to C1. To quickly review, the internal carotid artery, or ICA, is at risk of injury with anterior cortical perforation of C1 with the drill, bicortical screw fixation of C1, and transarticular screw fixation of C1 and C2. On average, the ICA is less than 3 millimeters from C1 based on imaging studies. Injury to the ICA can be disastrous depending on the patient's collateral circulation. Courier et al. studied the anatomic relationship of the ICA to C1 using contrast-enhanced CTs. 
They looked at 50 CTs with contrast to determine the distance of the ICA to C1, which was 2.88 millimeters on the left and 2.8 millimeters on the right. The ICA was at moderate risk of injury in 46% of cases and high risk in 12% of cases. They concluded that any time there will be screw fixation into C1, a CT angiography is recommended to determine ICA location, risk of injury, and the possibility of needing to switch to unicortical fixation. Eskander et al. looked at vertebral artery anatomy using MRI on 250 patients. They identified three main groups of anomalies, intraforaminal anomalies with midline migration, extraforaminal anomalies that is entering in the foramen at a different level, and arterial anomalies. They found that 7.6% of patients had midline migration of the vertebral artery and 92% of vertebral arteries were in their transverse foramen at the C6 level. Ultimately, they concluded that vertebral artery anatomy needs to be carefully considered to avoid injury. Nasser et al. retrospectively reviewed 750 multi-level cervical spine decompression surgeries by a single surgeon to identify the risk of C5 palsy. 630 patients were included in the analysis and they found that the mean incidence of C5 palsy was 6.7% with a trend for a higher incidence for the laminectomy and fusion and higher in males. Ultimately, they concluded that the incidence of C5 palsy was not statistically significant based on the surgical procedure. And moving on to the final question, a 42-year-old woman is brought to the emergency department following a motor vehicle accident. She has sustained multiple injuries and she is intubated and pharmacologically paralyzed. Sagittal cervical CT scans through the right cervical facets, the left cervical facets, and the midline reveal an occipitocervical dissociation with subluxation of the occipitocervical joints bilaterally. Definitive management of her cervical injury should consist of, and the choices are 1, anterior discectomy and fusion at C4-C5, 2, immobilization in a Philadelphia collar and voluntary flexion and extension radiographs when awake, 3, occipital cervical fusion with instrumentation, 4. Halo immobilization for 12 weeks. And 5. Left C6 superior facetectomy and posterior fusion at C6 C7 with instrumentation. The correct answer to this question is 3. Occipital cervical fusion with instrumentation. So the CT scans reveal an occipital cervical dissociation with subluxation of the occipital cervical joints bilaterally. Definitive management should consist of an occipital cervical fusion with instrumentation. Immobilization in a Philadelphia collar is inadequate for this highly unstable injury and halo immobilization, while affording adequate temporary immobilization, is not appropriate definitive management for this ligamentous injury. The patient does not have an injury at C4-C5 or C6-C7. That's all for this review about occipital cervical instability. Hopefully that was helpful. This is the OrthoBullets podcast, a daily audio review session by OrthoBullets the free learning and collaboration community for orthopedic surgery education. Keep in mind that these podcasts are designed to go along with the topics on orthobullets.com, and in fact, you can listen to these episodes right on the OrthoBullets website or mobile app while going through the topic. If you've gotten any value from the OrthoBullets podcast so far, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and writing us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It will help us spread the word and increase our discoverability tremendously. Also, if you aren't already... Be sure to follow OrthoBullets on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube for daily high-yield content. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you all tomorrow right here on the OrthoBullets podcast.